Hi, welcome to Six Questions. This is a, our podcast sponsored by Save Our States. I'm Trent England, the executive director and founder of Save Our States. Very glad to be joined by a real conservative warrior, someone, someone I've known for a while now, Lori Roman, who is the president and CEO of the American Constitution ACRU. Lori, good morning. Good morning, Trent. Yeah, thanks great so much. Great to be for with you. Yeah, it's, it's great to, to have you here and, and get to talk to you this way uh, with, with our audience. And uh, first question, very simple, tell people about ACRU and, and what you do. American Constitutional Rights Union was started about 22 years ago by two close advisors to Ronald Reagan. Uh, the first was uh, Bob Carlson, who was considered the father of modern welfare reform. And someone else you'll recognize, and that's Attorney General Ed Meese, who was our founding board member. And we're very, very fortunate that he is still on our board and still giving us regular guidance and just an amazing person. And uh, so many other folks on our team have been there for 20 years or more, like Ken Blackwell and Morton Blackwell, as we say that the, the Blackwell cousins. And we fight to defend constitutional rights. And mostly what we focus on is First Amendment, Second Amendment, uh, election integrity, border security, and uh, very recently in the last two years, we, I believe, was the, we were the first national organization to come out in early March 2020 against what we deemed the crisis tyrants. And those were the folks that were using COVID as an excuse for their authoritarian impulses. So we've been fighting vaccine mandates and shutdowns and, and everything related to that for unfortunately two years now. So that's been our main emphasis and election integrity. Uh, and, and that's what brings us here today, right? So election integrity is something that ACRU has been working on for a dozen years. We were one of the first organizations in the conservative movement to work on this issue. And uh, we're still at it every single day. That's great. Uh, second question, jumping back just a little bit to your own, your own career path. Uh, you worked at General Motors, and the the car industry has been very much in the news uh, in the last couple of years with all kinds of problems. And then you see people talking about, you know, uh, can we shift, you know, within a period of, you know, years or maybe a decade to all electric, and yet they can't get the electrical components for the cars they're making now. I'm just curious if you have kind of you know, from, from someone who's worked in that industry and now works in politics, uh, kind of a view on, on what is going on in the, in the auto industry and maybe what the future is. Well, it's been a while since I was in the auto industry. Uh, after I left, I um, created a, a little bit of trouble by coming out as a former uh, General Motors management person who uh, openly declared that they shouldn't be bailed out which um, got me a lot of uh, negative attention and maybe a little positive, but um, my experiences with General Motors and the auto industry generally are that um, very slow to innovate. It's difficult to innovate. Union contracts really do hamper a lot of what's done and the profitability. And uh, frankly, um, problems with the union workforce also hampers that. So. Um, Putting all of our uh, putting putting all of our hope on a quick innovation and a quick transition from the perspective of the industry itself, I would say, is probably naively hopeful, 
And that's not even getting into what I feel about um, what is a lot of the uh, corrupt thoughts about and why some people want to go green. I just think there are a lot of ulterior motives that have absolutely nothing to do with going green. So aside from that, I would just say from my experience in the auto industry, uh, I wouldn't put a lot of uh, hopes and dreams on their uh, quick and successful innovation into this area, but also just practically speaking, you know, I was at a hotel um, a week or so ago out of town and huge hotel. There were two stations to uh, plug in electric vehicles. And then the parking lot next door had a big sign that said no electrical vehicles allowed to be parked in this parking lot due to fire hazard. So uh, in a major city around the hotel, there was almost nowhere to actually park an electric vehicle. Yeah, now it seems like there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of infrastructure issues to be sorted out in addition to all of the innovation that's needed. Jumping back to politics, Lori, there's been a lot of focus over the last few years on how Americans are moving. I think especially during COVID, sort of moving to places that better fit with their cultural and political views. You're in Florida, I'm in Oklahoma, so we're both conservatives in, in pretty conservative states. I'm curious what you think about this, this so-called big sort. Uh, you know, do you think it's a, it's a good thing, bad thing, and, and what do you think it means for politics in the future? Many years ago, when I was the executive director of ALEC, I worked with uh, Steve Moore and Art Laffer to develop a project called uh, A Rich State, Poor State. And um, that project is still going on, but back then we were evaluating really the migration and the economic environment in the states and, and, how, and we talked often about how it does affect um, migration within the states. And that, I mean, we started that in 2009 or no, 2006. And so now this is it on steroids. Now you have, uh, really the impulses of what we call the crisis tyrants at ACRU, driving people out of their states. I mean, literally driving citizens to flee as if they, and some of them have told me, they feel like they've crossed over from East Berlin to West Berlin. Um, this is a, a level of authoritarianism that we have not seen and it's scary. And um, I can say, I only hope that most of the people coming to Florida for this freedom um, continue to vote in a way that protects that continued freedom. And uh, they're not bringing any bad habits with them as far as uh, voting themselves some socialism. But in Florida, you know, we, our, our motto at ACRU is live free. And after the first couple of months, we were so happy to see that our governor um, really believed that the state should live free. Uh, we have bumper stickers saying, uh, our C4 has bumper stickers saying we love our gov and um, live free with the Florida outline and, and we've been celebrating it. But for all, of, for all of that celebration and the fun that we have in Florida talking about it, I spend most of my time out and about in the United States of America where people are not completely free in so many areas. And who would have thought in our lifetime that we would see that, that we'd have governments, so, well, one example, we helped um, in the fall of uh, 2019, no, 2020, sorry. Um, we helped a pastor in Maryland who was being uh, really harassed by the health department in his county. He was alone in his office on a non-church day 
when someone tried to get in the door, which was locked because he's alone, it's not regular business hours for the church. And he went to the door to answer it. And it was a county health official who proceeded to give him a citation because he didn't have a mask on alone in his office. So they gave him a citation. They threatened him with jail time, a $5,000 fine, and the closure of his church until the end of the pandemic for not having a mask on alone in his office. So just think about where we are in America where that's considered okay. Of course, we mounted a, a PR campaign that um, made that, let's just say, uh, disadvantaged position, disadvantageous position from the, the county and the governor and things changed. And we got the pastor a lot of press, but who would have ever thought in America that we could be in such a situation? And personally, I believe that if a county health official leads a charge like that, they need to be named uh, in our press releases and our PR. Uh, we shouldn't just say, oh, county health official, and I wish I could remember their name right now, because these people who make decisions like this to send people out to harass people who are doing nothing wrong, they should be named. I don't think they should be harassed, and I don't think we should be nasty or yell at them. I don't think we should pick at their houses, but they should be named and be held accountable for those activities in the public square. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You, you mentioned the the Berlin Wall, East Berlin, West Berlin, and I always remember the first time I saw a piece of the Berlin Wall, which was at the Reagan Library in California, and it, it struck me uh, that one side has all of this, this beautiful graffiti on it, all this beautiful painting, it's very colorful. The other side is just gray. Uh, you know, it's just gray, bleak concrete. And the, the, the thing to me that was so fascinating was that when that section was cut out and shipped to the United States, someone had spray painted uh, W on the one side and E on the other side, as if people couldn't tell which side faced freedom, right? It's so obvious looking at it, which side faced freedom. And I think we see that in the, the distinction between these states that are oriented toward freedom like Florida and these other states that have been just terrible to people like Maryland and uh, you know Michigan in, in so many ways and New York. Uh, no, that's, that's, uh, that's fascinating. You do such, such great work. I'm, I'm talking here on our Six Questions podcast with Lori Roman. She is the president and CEO of the American Constitutional Rights Union, ACRU. Uh, Lori, fourth question. You've worked on a lot of issues in your public policy career. One of those issues is school choice. Why do you think it's important to fund students rather than funding systems? Well, many moons ago, I was also a college professor for about six years, and um, that's that was kind of the beginning of me getting into school choice. What I found was that the students who came to me from, you know, by all accounts, good public schools, very well-funded suburban public schools, uh, didn't didn't know what a complete sentence was, couldn't write a five-paragraph essay, didn't know how to research in a library back when people used libraries, and um, and I got really concerned. So my work in school choice really came out of my work as a college professor in that I was doing some real remedial education on the side and tutoring of my students just to get them up to speed to handle their course load. And um, even my students, when I taught 400 level classes, junior and senior year, I would find that 
they had managed to get through two years of college and some of them still couldn't write a, a proper research paper. So I started exploring a, what I thought the answer might be. And the answer that I came up with then was competition and the ability for parents to choose the best um, environment for their, for their children. And um, that's, that's when I started an alternative school board association in Michigan uh, many years ago to really seek out people to run for school board who were advocates of parental choice and parental rights and fiscal responsibility. And then we did something really unusual. We invited charter school board members and private school board members to all join the same association. And those people are often shunned in regular school board associations. So um, without that competition and without that choice, I, I don't think we can ever fix this. Um, I was also the director of school choice in the George W. Bush administration, and we advanced and, and won uh, through Congress uh, D.C. school choice. So we got uh, vouchers for low-income children in D.C. And I talked to a lot of parents during that time, and most of them were making the decision based on safety. So you often think about parents making decisions based on academics, and that's true. But D.C. parents were mostly making that decision based on safety. And um, who should be able to tell the parent that they can't pick the safest school for their kids? Yeah, that's such a that's a reality that's so far away from most suburban rural voters. You know, I, I I'm really glad you made that point because I think that that you know that is the first that's the first desire of parents is just to have their kids in a safe place. And then academics and cultural issues and all those other things uh, come after that. And I think, you know, one of the challenges working on school choice here in Oklahoma is you, you have a lot of people who just don't understand what it's like to live in certain parts of Oklahoma City or Lawton or Tulsa. And I think sometimes they come across as very callous, not meaning to be so, but they just don't other, understand other people's situations and neighborhoods. Uh, so yeah, Lori, I'm I'm really glad you brought that up. I, I think that gets missed all the time. Um, fourth or fifth question of our six questions have to ask one about the electoral college because of course that's what we do here at Save Our States is defend the electoral college. I know this is something you care about a lot too, Lori. And of course, you're you're oriented toward defending our constitutional rights. Part of what protects those rights are, are the structures in our constitution. Where do you see that intersection between things like the Electoral College, these kind of structures of federalism and checks and balances, and the way that our constitution protects our individual rights? Well, I started getting uh, interested in protecting the Electoral College back when I was the executive director of American Legislative Exchange Council. And shortly after I left there, um, teamed up with a few people in Washington, just trying to do some briefings in Washington amongst conservatives about the danger. That was, gosh, I think that was like 2010, um, about, you know, protecting the Electoral College and the danger of, of losing it. So even when I started researching it back then, I really felt like the, the Electoral College system that we have is the bedrock. Um, a lot of the battles that we're involved with at ACRU are, are really on top of that bedrock. But if you lose that bedrock, which really prevents um, really mob tyranny, you might call it, um, you have to protect the interests of all of the individual states. And I believe that's the brilliance of the founders, but it's really the bedrock that what you work on is the foundation of everything else as it comes to election integrity, I think. 
if we lose that, the rest tumbles. And um, I, I can't emphasize it enough. And, and I'm really thankful for your work on this. We continue to uh, speak out on it uh, when we have the opportunity at ACRU, but your intense work on it when no one else would kind of pick this up and, and tackle it. And it was a difficult subject back back when you picked it up, it was a difficult subject to help people understand because they didn't understand the threat. What surprised me is the number of people who call themselves conservatives who I think have fallen prey to the national. And it's, it's a huge disappointment to me um, that, um, and, and to some extent, and this might be too big of a conversation for today, but to some extent, I think it goes back to what I've often talked about, the elites versus the regular folks. Um, uh, after I left ALEC, I really started exploring and, and started an organization that really focused on, this is not always about Democrats and Republicans, this is about the elites versus the regular folks. And the Electoral College is one of those areas in which I feel it is the elites versus the regular folks. Um, the framers created a system in which regular folks' needs were represented and where presidential candidates had to speak to them and care about those. Um, I believe on, on the side of the national popular vote is mostly elitist. Um, and I don't hear many people talking about it in that framework and that's probably a bigger conversation for another day, but I think it does fit into that elitist versus regular vote battle that I see playing out every day and I see it I see the strains of that in, in the COVID tyranny. I see it almost everywhere we look right now. It also is there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. We, we see elites, anytime, anytime the elites come up against something in the constitution that might prevent them from getting their way, then they, they see that, they, they invent some reason why it's a problem, whether it's the first amendment or the second amendment or the electoral college. and. I mean, it's why all the work that, that you do at ACRU is just so, so critical to protecting our rights. Lori Roman, last question. We always ask, uh, we always ask this at the end of our Six Questions podcast. Who is your favorite founding father and why? Oh, well, that's a good one. I, um, I often uh, find myself, I collect quotes. And I have books and books of quotes, and I'm kind of a quote addict. Um, I find myself often quoting uh, two people overall, if I kind of go back, uh, Thomas Jefferson and Daniel Webster. Yeah. And so uh, I, if I use my quotes as an indication, <clears throat> I would have to say that is the answer. In fact, I just, I think I just threw around a Thomas Jefferson quote the other day, but in the midst of all of my quotes, there's an awful lot also of Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher, Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and uh, C.S. Lewis. So there you got the gamut of all the people I like. There we go. <laughs> Very good. Well, Lori Roman, President and CEO of the American Constitutional Rights Union, the ACRU. Uh, thank you so much for being a part of Six Questions. Where can people connect with ACRU online? Theacru.org is our C3 acru.org and our c4 is uh, acruaction.com wonderful thank you so much for being a part of the podcast thank you